What if in 2024, you got a little bit better every day? When you're learning a new language with Babbel, that's exactly what you're doing. And if Babbel can help you start speaking a new language in just three weeks, imagine what you could do in a full year. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses are helping me learn real-life conversation skills in Spanish. It's getting so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, or speak to merchants. Studies from Yale, Michigan State University, and others continue to prove Babbel is better. One study found that using Babbel for 15 hours is equivalent to a full semester at college. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com SPP. That's right. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. The podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people. That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest, I don't understand that. As a man, I just, I don't get it. Welcome to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Hello and welcome to Smart People Podcast, conversations that satisfy your curious mind. Chris Stemp here. Thanks for tuning in. We have a very typical Smart People Podcast episode today. One of those ones that's going to bend your mind a little bit and you can't wait to talk about it over the dinner table with friends or family. Now, many of you have heard of chaos theory and why you've heard of it, who knows? Similarly, there is another theory that is even more profound. It is called complexity theory. And that theory essentially explains where life comes from, how it's created, what are the laws that govern consciousness and being. And I realize this sounds a little crazy, but it also has relevance in day-to-day -day life, and it's just plain fascinating. What an amazing conversation. I love finding these diamonds in the rough, as I think of them. And I can't wait for you to listen. Our guest this week is Neil Thies. And Neil is a professor of pathology at NYU School of Medicine. Through his research, he has been a pioneer of adult stem cell plasticity and the anatomy of the human interstitium. He is also a longtime student of Zen Buddhism. Dr. Thies' studies in complexity theory have led to interdisciplinary collaborations in fields such as integrative medicine, consciousness studies, and the relationship between science and religion. Brilliant guy, brilliant topic, love the book. His new book is called Notes on Complexity, A Scientific Theory of Connection, Consciousness, and Being. Listen, I've said it once, I've said it multiple times. Reach out to me at smartpeoplepodcast@gmail.com. at gmail.com. I'd love to connect with you on a Zoom call, a phone, even via email, and just ask you a few questions about the podcast doesn't have to take up a lot of your time, and it actually matters. Every single one I'm responding to, and I'd love your opinion on where this podcast goes from here. So shoot me a quick email. It'll be informal. can take as little as five minutes if that's all you got, or if you want to chat for 30, I'd love to. Smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com. That's it. Let's get into it. We are talking to Neil Thies about his brand new book, Notes on Complexity, A Scientific Theory of Connection, Consciousness, and Being. Enjoy. Your book, by the way, I don't know if you set out to write this, but is like a <laughs> mind-bending cluster of confusion and insight and brilliance and insanity. Is that? Did you know that was what you were doing? Oh, yeah, sure. Okay, good. <laughs> you know, the book, I've been doing the book as a talk for about 20 years. Wow. 
it's evolved and expanded. Um, often, you know, some of the people I meet, I, I mention in the book, um, presenting this stuff got me into rooms where I was talking to people I'd never met before. And they were like, oh, I'm thinking something similar. And then together we take it another few steps further. But basically the book is the talk and the talk is pretty much the same version with a few extensions that I gave in 2001, I think. So we're going to talk about it. I mean, really starts with complexity theory and goes from there to ground it first. I have to tell you some things that jumped out to me. One, this is just interesting. And here's my hook for the listeners. You taught me why the more I wash my hands, the more they crack and get dry. (laughs) We don't think of that, right? We just go, oh, they're dried out. But why are they dried out? Right. And people might go, oh, we're washing. If you're really smart, we're washing away our natural oils. But where did those oils come from? And that's where where Neil comes in. So, Neil, just for fun, tell us how this works. Okay, so, um, you know, before I do that, let me just say um, with these talks, the reason how crazy and amazing Um, and impossible for anyone else to replicate these talks are, is that as I go through the material, um, usually when I give a talk to a group of students about a defined topic, it sort of builds and there's an end and everyone in the room is with you in the same moment. This talk, since the very beginning, it's just light bulbs going off all around the room. And for everyone, it's a different light bulb or set of light bulbs. So, so this is one of your light bulbs <laughs> and, um, and it's a good one. So there's something called the microbiome, which people, it's now in the news. There are popular books that are bestsellers about it. And this is basically that there are mostly bacteria, some viruses, some fungi that live all over the surface of your skin and all over the interior of anything that communicates with the outside. So up your nose, into your sinuses, down your throat, through your digestive tract, into your lungs. There are bacteria everywhere. And these are good bacteria. Without them, you can't have a functioning human body. And this is one of the examples I give in the book is the skin. So at the creases of your skin, um, there are bacteria as there are here and as there are here. But the bacteria at the creases Um, They may be different bacteria from person to person, but functionally, they all do the same thing, which is they they digest uh, material from the cell walls of dying skins at the surface to generate um, lubricating molecules so your skin doesn't crack. Because, you know, we don't stop to think, how is it that your creases can bend your entire lifetime, decades, over a century, And things don't crack because there's auto lubrication without the bacteria. You can't be a living functioning human being. The interior of the digestive tract at the microscopic level, there are these little things called villi, little fingers that project from the intestine that really hugely increase the surface area of the lining. Um, And that's how you're able to digest as much food as you are given the limited run from top to bottom. You have this incredible surface area, but if there are no bacteria in the digestive tract when an animal is born, you can do this with mice, they don't develop those villi. And they have, uh, uh, they're they're unable to take in food and digest food. They have a a malabsorption problem. And then you add the bacteria and the villi happen. So the anatomy, the microanatomy of your body doesn't arise because your genes have programmed it. Your genes program for the interaction with the bacteria out of which comes the anatomic structure and function. Wait, wait, what? (laughs) Okay, let me just make sure. That's cool, right? (laughs) In utero, you have bacteria? Like, how's this work? It's at the moment of birth when you get colonized. You get colonized and then... That colonization tells your body essentially what, like, oh, I need villi to something with this. Is that like to absorb and digest food? Yep. Mm -hmm. And the bacteria is the instructions for that to a degree. Well, 
it's in Buddhist terms, <laughs> you can see why the, the book easily veers into the metaphysical. In Buddhist terms, they call this dependent co-arising. It isn't the bacteria causing it. It isn't your genes causing it. It's the interaction between them that give rise to the normal functioning. So the bacteria and your human genome and your human cells are not separate things that are acting upon each other. And this is the point I'm making in that chapter of the book. They are actually one large community of cells that your human body can't exist without the 50% of cells that are not human. So at the cellular level, you know, this is one of the points I make. Um, at the cellular level, I mean, normally we're talking to each other and we see our boundaries here, that's easy. Um, and if we were in the room, you'd be sitting there, I'd be sitting here. But if I shook your hand when you came in the room, we would exchange bacteria. If you're sitting in my apartment, which we are, <laughs> um, there's dust, right? Well, what's the dust except the shed skin cells and some of the bacteria from off your skin? So at the, the cellular level, the boundary of your body is no longer just here. It's wherever you're leaving those cells behind. So you walk away from here, you turn the doorknob, leaving your cells, your bacteria um, behind. And an extreme version of this <laughs> that's really cool um, is that if you look at the microbiome on the surface of people's skins in their digestive tracts, people within a household and their pets all share the same microbiome. Ah, yeah. So are they individuals that have bacteria on them? Or are they a giant microbiome that have a few islands of human and dog and cat cells? Where are your boundaries? That's actually a question <laughs> I do have, which is, and okay. I think you kind of answered it, and you've you mentioned it many times in your book, which, by the way, I have right here, and I have it highlighted everywhere. So if you see me looking, that's what I'm looking at. <laughs> are we human or are we just a vessel for bacteria because the more i've learned is that the bacteria can literally control our mood for example they're finding out like gut bacteria so are we just a, a meat sack for bacteria <laughs> well that brings us to another really important <laughs> concept in the book called complementarity so if people who are science geeks, like I was, I grew up learning about quantum physics and the word complementarity was used for this business about how is light a wave or a particle. Um, and depending on the experiment, it looks like one or the other. It turns out it's both, but you can only see one at the same time. So a better version for people to imagine this, for me, it's in the book. I don't know which the page finger? you have it there. Yeah. Is it your finger? No, oh, no. Okay. the faces in the box. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 So you have that famous picture, two faces looking in, in profile, and they look like faces, but the space between them looks like a vase. Is it two faces or is it a vase? You can really kind of only see one at a time. You can move back and forth, but really you can only see one. So that's another complementarity. To say it's the faces is incomplete. To say it's the vase is incomplete. To say we're humans that have bugs living on them is half the equation. To say that we're a bunch of human material that's controlled by this bacterial uh, ecosystem is also true. So it really depends on the perspective. This is a complementarity. Now, we know that bacteria, you know, you, you change the bacteria of your gut, they, you can do this in mice really easy. We're starting to practice it in humans to see whether it can be therapeutic. You can take bacteria from a fat mouse or a depressed mouse and put it in to the, a normal mouse who's not depressed or not fat, and the obesity transfers, the depression transfers, and vice versa. You can undo one or the other. Um, but the fact is that we're also controlling our microbiomes. We're washing our hands. We're meeting specific people who will cross-pollinate microbiomes in a specific way. Um, so, and now we're getting wise to this. So we're taking um, all sorts of compounds and capsules and stuff. I've got probiotic gummies that I don't think are doing anything for my digestive. I was going to ask. But like, I love having two gummies to start my day and end my day. There you go. So, yeah. Yeah. So, so 
it's always a mutuality. This episode is brought to you by Hims. We don't want to admit it, but 52% of men over 40 experience some form of erectile dysfunction. But like many health problems, no one wants to talk about or take up hours of your day to deal with it. That's why you need to check out Hims. Hims is changing men's healthcare by providing simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for erectile dysfunction, hair loss, weight loss, and more. The entire process is 100% online, so you can get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. Hims offers an array of high-quality options, including pills or chews for ED, and serums, sprays, or oral options for hair loss. If prescribed, your medication ships directly to you, for free and in discreet packaging. No waiting rooms and no pharmacy visits. No insurance is needed. Pay one low price for your treatments, online visits, ongoing shipments, and provider messaging. You can even manage your plan on the Hims app, track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. Start your free online visit today at hims.com/smart. That's h i m s.com/smart for your personalized treatment options. One last time, hims.com slash smart. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash twist for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscriptions plan. This episode is brought to you by Rocket Money. If I asked you how many subscriptions you have, would you be able to list all of them and how much you're paying? If you would have asked me this question before I started using Rocket Money, I would have said yes. But let me tell you, I would have been so wrong. I can't believe how many I had and all the money I was wasting. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps you lower your bills. I can see all of my subscriptions in one place, and if I see something I don't want, I can cancel it with a tap. I never have to get on the phone with customer service. We'll even try to get you a refund for the last couple months of wasted money and negotiate to lower your bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is take a picture of your bill and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members on average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com smart. One more time, that's rocketmoney.com slash smart. As we think about your book, it's called Notes on Complexity, A Scientific Theory of Connection, Consciousness, and Being. What I didn't realize when I read that title was that there is even something called complexity theory. I I've never heard of that. <laughs> so I'm going to let you describe it. I'll just tell you and the listeners what I found fascinating is essentially, as I understand it, complexity theory is our current best way to understand life. Would you yep. say that's fair? That's totally fair. That's okay. the point. Okay. That's chapter one. Yeah. So yeah. what's interesting, the reason I say that is because if it's the best way we know to understand life, I would venture to guess less than 10% of the people listening to this podcast who are well-learned, well-read have ever heard of it. Now, how, have you heard of chaos theory? Yes. Right. Now, why have you heard of chaos theory? It's like, I have no idea. Because there was a really terrific popular book by James Glyke and in the year 2000, I think, okay. um, that hit the New York Times bestseller list. Uh, and fractals, you know. Oh, my gosh. I got, we're going to talk about fractals. Right, right. So, so yeah. everyone's seen fractals. They have no yeah. idea what their significance is, but they've exactly. seen them because they're gorgeous. Yes. So there was a moment where there was a reason that it caught the popular imagination. Um, I say in the book, and I, and I mean it, that I think that complexity is the third great pillar of modern science from the 20th century, the first being quantum mechanics and the second being relativity, <laughs> or the other way around. You know, those are the two, right? And everyone knows about them, even though almost nobody has an intuitive understanding of them, and even experts have a problematic intuitive understanding of them, right? Yeah. And these are famous. Relativity became famous because um, it was the first positive international effort that caught news media attention after World War I. 
when general relativity was proven during this internationally uh, orchestrated solar eclipse. And Einstein is one of the first really true modern celebrities because of that. So there were celebrity cigars, cele I'm, I'm sorry, relativity cigars, relativity playing cards. Uh, wow. You know, I didn't it was crazy. That. It was yeah. crazy. He was the Kim Kardashian of his day <laughs> Love for it. relativity. Right. Where quantum physics is concerned, how many Nobel Prizes did it win? Got to be a lot. Right. And, yeah. and it was year after year after year in the 20s and 30s. And the discoveries were so strange and so fantastical that also made it into the. And how many books are there? Have there been for 100 years to explain this inexplicable weirdness? So everyone knows about them. Complexity was the next step after chaos back in the 1980s. So chaos was sort of in the 1970s. Um, complexity started to emerge, taking all the chaos science and taking it a step further. What they both have in common is their theories of how systems behave. And a system is you have a whole that's made up of a bunch of parts. That's called a system. So a car is a system made up of all the parts of a car. A clock, mechanical clock is a system made up of the parts of a clock. And you know that if you look at all the parts of a clock or a car, you could deduce from all of it without even rebuilding it, what it is you're gonna make. And certainly if you put it all together, you get a clock. Um, so in that case, the sum of the parts is exactly what the whole is. The whole is exactly the sum of its parts, right? Yep. Chaos was the first thing that you couldn't do that with. It looked at natural processes that you required open-ended computer programming to model because they weren't a static thing. They were always changing. So the way fractals were discovered is you had a computer model that generated these images as it did its calculations. And the more it did its calculations, the more refined and infinitely uh, filigreed were these fractal structures that came in. Um, the thing about chaos is, and, and so you see fractals everywhere, the shape of trees, shape of clouds, um, the way a heart beats is a, is a chaotic system. Um, the thing about those, that's the famous um, butterfly flapping its wings in Brazil creates a tornado in um, Texas. That's the, the original formulation. Um, the thing about that is that every time, if you model it, every time that butterfly flaps its wings the same way, it will always generate that tornado in Texas, exactly the same way. So and it's that's chaos. That's chaos. That's chaos. Okay. Yeah. Because yeah. I know that differs from complexity. Right. Yeah. Complexity right. is that even if you have exactly the same, same starting conditions, things will happen that are unpredictable. And that instantly that's recognizable what living things do. You can have two identical twins. Why aren't they the same? And the longer they go, the farther off they go in, in, in separate directions. Um, if you do this in computer modeling, you can start the same modeling of a complex system, like how cells organize into tissue or how ants form colonies um, or how our banking system works. And given what's in the news, we could talk yeah. about banks. It doesn't work, right? Yeah. yeah. The thing is that um, for all these living things, ants, cells in the body, banking systems, flocks of birds, they all self-organize these smaller parts, the ants, the birds, the cells, um, the people, um, all self-organize into larger scale structures, ant colonies, tissues, organs, bodies, flocks of birds, humans into cities, economic systems, um, everything into the ecosystem. Um, the rules of complexity are extremely simple, but they generate this incredible diversity that's open-ended, unpredictable, adaptive. Um, everything around us um, really fits under the complexity category. And the thing is that there were no sudden discoveries to make the news. Right. But it right. just gathered over time. I look at it as complexity fills in the gap between the infinitesimal that quantum physics shows us 
and the vastness at galactic scales that relativity shows us, complexity fills it all in between where we live and where we see it. You equate in your book a number of times to ants, like you mm -hmm. just did. And I think it's very helpful. And you said, you know, in an ant colony, nobody is telling the ants what to do. The queen does not give marching orders. Right. And the second you wrote that, I went, oh, my God, you're right. Right. Wait, <laughs> yeah. how do they know what to do? And that question is essentially answered by complexity theory. Right. And that, that, so I just, for others, that's the way to understand it in my mind. Yeah. Now, how it does that, we're going to talk about. But mm -hmm. the human body is also created that way, which I didn't realize. The brain doesn't tell the body how to form or what to do. No. It just forms. Mm -hmm. So tell us how that happens. Using complexity theory, obviously. I mean, not the whole thing, but... So again, the same, regardless of what the complex system is, whether it's ant colonies, flocks, cities, bodies, the rules are the same. You have a bunch of interacting things. So in the body, it's cells, and they're interacting with each other. And first, one cell doesn't make a body. Three cells don't make a body. You need a whole number of them. The more cells you have, the more complex the body you can have. So, you know, um, a small, tiny, multicellular worm is far less complex than a mouse, which is far less complex than a blue whale that, let's say, I think I say has two billion cells in it. Some crazy number. Yeah, it's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> we have four I, I, trillion have cells in, in our body. Yeah. Right? Okay, yeah, so, yeah. yeah. Um, but in, in some flatworms that scientists study because they're good experimental models, they have, you know, 120 cells, 150 cells. But the thing is that the rules of how the cells interact is exactly the same, regardless of whether it's 200, 2,000, 2 billion. Those rules are, one, none of them are monitoring the whole system. Exactly what you said. Nothing's top down. It's all local. Every cell is just interacting with the cell next to it. The way we're walking down the street, we don't see the, the pattern of pedestrian traffic down the sidewalk. We're just listening to our, you know, talking on our phone or listening to our music or worrying about what we're, we're walking towards at the beginning of our day. And we're doing all these micro adjustments to our shoulders, stepping this way and that way. And somehow, if you look above it, all these people who are not paying attention to each other have developed a pedestrian flow up one side and down the other. It's all bottom up. No one's paying attention to what the organization is going to be. It's all from the local interactions. Now, the quality of the interactions matters. So there are interactions that inhibit other interactions and those that pump other interactions up. So we call these negative feedback loops and positive feedback loops. I get all excited when I talk about this. No, I mean, it's, it, I'm with you. Yeah. So, it's just hard to bring back down to the yeah. level if you haven't read uh -huh. the book. So that's what we're trying to do, you know? So this feedback loop business is, is one of the, the key things. Um, an air conditioner is a negative feedback loop. Um, the room gets hot. The air conditioner turns on. The room gets colder. The air conditioner turns off. So a negative feedback loop feeds back on itself in a negative way to limit the range of possibilities. And so you notice everything in life, nothing is static. Living things aren't static. They're always sort of oscillating. Your, your temperature on a daily basis, your hunger on a moment to moment basis, when you're horny, when you're not, <laughs> everything, <laughs> everything oscillates. So that's a result of having negative feedback loops. Sometimes you need a positive feedback loop. Let's say you get an infection and your immune system will work better if you have a higher body temperature. So the positive feedback loop that drives um, body temperature up gives you a fever. And that gives you a better condition in which you can cure the infection. But when the infection melts away, then you have negative feedback loops that come back on and suppress the positive. And I'm assuming so, in this, in that, in that example, there is also a negative feedback loop that prevents your body from getting too hot, which would right. then kill the system. So right. like, and maybe I'm wrong here, but my assumption again is the reason complexity theory governs life is because if these negative and positive feedback loops weren't 
in existence in the right way, we would just, we would die. There wouldn't, you couldn't survive. So it's the balance between these feedback loops that's just as important. Right, exactly. And, um, but this applies whether you're talking about bodies, human societies, flocks of birds, the same stuff is going on. The fourth thing that's to me the most fascinating is that there has to be some randomness in the system. And chaotic systems don't have any randomness in them inherently, but there's always some randomness. So think of it in terms of the ant colonies. You look from a distance and you see a food line and it looks like a straight line from the food to the colony. You think, who organized that? Well, first of all, no one did. It's the ants interacting with each other, laying down pheromone trails, and and they form the food line the way we form our patterns down the side. But if you bend down and look more closely, you always see there's a few ants that aren't following the line. And you think, well, those are useless ants. What evolutionary function are they serving? Well, the fact is that if you step your foot in the middle of the food line, those ants that are part of the line are the ones that will quickly establish the fastest route around your foot. Or when the food runs out, when the food runs out, it's those ants that are likely to find a new food source and reestablish a new line. So a small amount of randomness is necessary to adapt if the environment changes. Too much randomness, you can't get any self-organization and it's you know, just ants everywhere <laughs> and you don't get a human body. Too limited randomness. And then if the environment changes, it's like a machine. It's just going to do the same thing over and over again. Without any randomness, it can't find a new route around your foot. It can't find a new food line. And oh my the gosh. system collapses. Neil, I just thought about this and <laughs> this shit is so trippy, man. I feel like yeah, I need to be on drugs to talk about and it's it. It's everywhere. <laughs> yeah, that, that I do want to get into because mm-hmm. people might be going, yeah, but so what? But when you can leverage a model to have a better understanding of the world you inhabit, like that's helpful. And that's what this does. Imagine what you were just talking about, right? I mm-hmm. want to stay on this for a while because I think there's a lot of cool things. What, what's the principle that this one is called? Um, I call it a technical term for it is quenched disorder, which I like, um, but limited randomness, or, limited randomness. Yeah. Yeah. Th- that is essentially defining evolution. Yeah. Well, that's what yeah. it is, right? Well, it, it gets even trippier. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so when <laughs> this is, so there was a computer game called the game, oh, of, the life. game of life. Oh, I'm so glad you're going into this. Okay. Yeah. Go, go, and, go. And, Nerdy kids of my age. I remember when this was in Scientific American. I think it was 1970. And um, it was just a computer game. And how many boxes around a single box were um, were dark would determine whether in the next round that box would stay dark or would, or would die and go white. And so you'd get these shapes and patterns. It turned out that, um, <laughs> long story short, because of that game, People, it was a very simple model of something that had to do with chaos and had to do with order, but it wasn't entirely clear. Um, and this guy, Chris Langton, um, and another guy, um, David Packard, they were both studying this in the same way in parallel. And they both made the same discoveries at the same time, which was that if you change the parameters of the game slightly, the game would either freeze and die or it would just be noise. Um, And that was technically a version of chaos. Um, But in this zone between perfect order and chaotic disorder, there was a zone where all of a sudden you had these self-perpetuating, often biological looking forms and shapes that would just grow and change and adapt and were open-ended completely unpredictable. You could start the game exactly the same way, and that zone would never go in exactly the same way. That was the complexity region of the game of life. And so mathematically, complexity lies at the border between fractal chaos and perfect order. And there's this tension um, between chaos and order out of which in that little narrow zone there, there's, there's this dynamic creativity out of which come living things. And what David Packard showed is that if you play something like the game of life, or if you have cells in in an ocean soup interacting with each other, 
they tend towards complexity, that complexity is the natural outcome of self-organizing systems with a little bit of randomness, and the natural outcome of that is evolution. Complexity is evolution. Right. It's the process. It's the mathematical description of what Darwin was talking about. I'm, I'm trying to simplify, because uh, that's what my brain needs, but like mm -hmm. the human body is very structured. Okay, the cells know what to do, and we all look generally the same and have down to an infinitesimal degree, things do exactly what they're told, but not 100%. <laughs> because if they did, the first introduction of anything, any catastrophe, illness, whatever, we'd, we'd be wiped out immediately. Right. So essentially, the theory of evolution being small adaptive changes, which come from mutations which are uh, that random, random, exactly. Yeah. Those people's mutations allowed them to survive, which goes on. That's the, that right there is what we're talking about. If we were perfect machines where you could explain the outcome, one thing that changes in the system all wiped out. Right. And if it was too insane, we'd just be blobs of ooze because right. we so couldn't form. An example to, so with that, you know, mutations happen by ultraviolet radiation, for example. We know okay. that that's one of the more common things. So a little mutation every once in a while gives you that possibility for creative adaptation. That's the hallmark of complexity. But let's say the ozone layer melts away and UV light just floods in. There's too much disorder. Self-organization can't happen and you have a mass extinction event. Right. So you need some, but just enough. Right. You said something there when you were talking about, uh, and, and I was trying to write it down, complexity is between chaos and structure or something. And the, the way you were describing it, it made me think of, it's like you throw a bunch of stuff out there and there's a Goldilocks zone. And in that Goldilocks zone is where life comes from. And I couldn't help to think about it because that's essentially what it feels like the universe is, right? It's, right. there's this mad, there is, there. What's the one where like you can't predict anything is completely, is that chaos? Uh, no chaos. You can predict it. Uh, right. Yeah. I'm not sure what you mean. <laughs> well, so like the well, way I total think about disorder. It, yeah. Total, total disorder. disorder. Right. So the way I think about it is like, if you looked, um, in the, in the universe, right, wherever mm -hmm. there's not life as we know it, my, my guess is it's because there's so much disorder. There's no, there's no structure whatsoever. We just happen to be in this Goldilocks zone, which has enough disorder and enough structure. Right. It, it was David Packard that came up with the phrase that's really has lasted called the edge of chaos. Oh. Complexity is life at the edge of chaos. Oh, wow. That's cool. Um, which when you get that in your brain, you're sort of like, oh, oh, okay. I get it. It's this special zone. It's not like building blocks. This is why, you know, so it's not like building blocks, but it's not like frost on a window pane, all fractal and beautiful, but it's not a living thing. But somewhere between that and an ice cube, something else happens there. And it's it's kind of magic. You know, there's it. Uh, the technical term is emergence. These larger scale adaptive structures emerge from the local interactions. And so you have emergence. And what the hell is emergence? Why does it happen? But it does. <laughs> it just does. Um, and it can be so remarkable. Well, I mean, it can be as remarkable as our living bodies. I was just about to say, planet. so is it, fair, yeah. is it fair to say that like life is emergence? Is that, again, just trying to simplify for people? <laughs> um, life is emergent. <laughs> I ah, wouldn't say it's emergence. Fair. Very fair. Um, yeah. It is an example of emergence. Right. And I, right? and you said something about life happens in the, in the zone Goldilocks the, zone. Yeah. Yeah. And there was a verb you, and I was going to, I can't remember what you said, but I wanted to slightly <laughs> correct yeah. you. Yes, please that do. Life arises within the complexity zone. Uh, there um, you go. It's not separate from it. It's, it is right. the thing itself. Yes. We mentioned the word a few times. I've seen them and they have blown my mind, but beyond that, I don't know their meaning, purpose, or definition. Fractals. Yeah. 
for those listening, it's like when you see that a tree also looks like your lungs. Mm-hmm. And when you look at it, you go, oh my gosh, we're all connected and it feels really cool. And I believe there's something greater out there, but, but that's where my everything stops. Yeah. Could you tell us what it is and provide some sanity to it? So going back to what I said about chaos theory before, um, the fractal geometry is the mathematics that embodies um, chaotic systems. So, um, you know, to, to study any particular thing scientifically, we have to have mathematical formulas for it, right? And so to understand how water molecules line up in an ice cube, we need geometry. Um, if we want to understand how water flowing through a narrow, uh, you know, a small stream with that's very narrow, the water goes fast. But as it as the edges of the stream widen out, it slows down. That relationship between the speed of flow of the water and the width of the channel has a mathematical relationship. You can make an algebraic equation. So for that kind of thing, you need algebra. For explaining things like frost crystals and the structure of trees and the shapes of clouds, um, you needed to have fractal geometries. And the key thing about fractal geometries that make them special, and the only way to, you can't, you can't make an equation for fractal geometries. You can create a program, a computer program that as it runs, turning in on itself over and over again, it sort of spins out this geometry. It doesn't happen all at once. It has to be this program. So we couldn't know about it until computers, the way we couldn't know about complexity until computers. And you could make models that play out over time. I don't want to mess up your flow, but when we say we couldn't know it until computers, is it because the mathematical complexity was unknown? And is it basically saying there there is a structure to these things? There is a, a, a predictability to it? Is that what so we're saying? Fractals are predictable. They complexity okay. is not. Right. Um, okay. Fantastic. But right. So, but the thing is, it's, it, you needed computers because the mathematics only reveals itself over time. You could theoretically do it without computers, but you'd have to be doing calculations after calculations after calculations and making dots on paper until you see a fractal form start to emerge. Oh, that wasn't going to happen. Okay. But you could set a computer going and come back in three hours and there are these fractals. The thing about fractals that makes them so beautiful and so interesting is no matter how far in you go, they always look the same. They remain Whatever scale of observation you go in, they always look the same. And so, you know, you're flying in a cloud, flying towards a cloud in a plane, and you see its shapes. And then you reach the cloud and you see those shapes. And then you go further into the cloud and you still see the same shapes. You're getting closer and closer, but it looks the same. It's independent of the scale. Right. right? That makes sense. And is it fair to say then, then the, the reason a lot of people have seen the tree and the lung fractal is because what we're saying is like the reason they look the same is because mathematically, when you create a structure like this, it has to follow these rules. Yeah, there, there are likely forms that will emerge. And, and the property all these forms share is that they are what's called scale invariant. No matter how close in you go, it continually looks like the same thing. So you start at the larger bits of the tree and you see branches and you go in closer and you see smaller branches and you get in closer and you see smaller branches. They all look the same. And if you took a picture of a twig um, against a white background and a picture of a tree against a white background, could you tell the difference? Right. Just a silhouette with nothing? No, you couldn't. Now, twigs come to an end, right? (laughs) So it's it's not infinite. But the mathematical expressions of fractals are infinite. Okay. You can go on infinitely in further in and further in and further in. Just keep going. And it just keeps giving you the same stuff. Um, now, that applies to complexity in part because, remember I said that, you know, 20 ants can make an ant colony, 200 ants, 2,000 ants. 
the same principles apply in part because it's related to chaos. The same rules apply. You get emergence the same way. It's just that you get more diversity and more complexity the more you have. But the fact that the rules are the same, whether you have our four trillion cells or the one million cells of a mouse or a hundred cells of a flatworm, um, that relates in part to this fractal scale and variance. Uh, I have to ask you, right, that, that one of the last parts of the subtitle is consciousness. Mm-hmm. How does consciousness intertwine with complexity theory? You know, basically the, 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 the talk that I mentioned at the beginning that I've given for 20 years, the basic thing was the entire universe is a complex system. Um, arising from its smallest thing, self-organizing into us and everything bigger. It's just one vast, complex system. And that kind of could explain everything I thought about or worried about scientifically, spiritually. It sort of captured the whole thing, except consciousness. And so that became this gnawing sort of thing. And by accident, random ants... I wound up oddly in a room with my collaborator, Minos Kafatos, who I talk about in the book, who's a cosmologist, quantum physicist, and um, has been interested in the same problem um, for even longer um, and has been writing about it for even longer. And we got talking. And basically the way we sort of think about, began to think about this, and, you know, when... Before I met Manas, um, and I learned about complexity, my immediate intuition was, oh, maybe complexity is how brain gives rise to mind. Emergent things that you can't predict from the individual things. You can't predict the nature of the colony from looking at the ants. But you can say there will be a colony. That's the emergence. Maybe mind is the emergent property of the brain. So that made sense to me for a while. (laughs) But there's something called the hard problem of consciousness. Um, David Chalmers, a philosopher, coined the phrase. And it's a real problem for people who think that the brain makes mind. Um, And that's, we can explain, for example, how red light enters the eye, hits the retina, causes a chemical reaction that sends signals back to the brain, electrical signals that lead to electrical signals in your visual cortex, and you recognize that you have seen red. But that doesn't tell you what what gave you the experience of the redness. That's the hard problem of consciousness. The brain can, we can give you all the steps, mechanical, chemical, biological, quantum level even, that lead to the transmission of signals. But what gives you the feeling of experiencing red? I see red. That's unexplainable. And I can't even say that your red is my red. Right. right? That's a trippy thing. Yep. Right. So nothing from this brain makes mind materialist view explains that. In cognitive neuroscience, they always talk about um, neural correlates of consciousness. So we see these great studies, I mean, you know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of papers showing that stimulation of the brain here gives a person this experience. Or when you show them this or give them this experience, this part of the brain lights up. But they've never been able to show that one causes the other. There's no causation ever proven. They only show the correlations. So they're stuck. They can't ever say... This is how the brain makes consciousness. All they can say is when the brain does this, this conscious event happens and vice versa. But no one shows causality. I see. Okay. So they don't say that that stimuli caused the brain to do this. They just say when the brain does this, this is what occurs. And we're making I have this experience and the brain does this. They Uh, happen together. Gotcha. Do I really know the brain caused that? No, it just (laughs) correlates with it. I see. Right. So this is a problem for uh, materialist cognitive neuroscientists and philosophers who want to say the brain makes the mind. Um, And complexity theory gives them the hope, 
that, oh, we know how amazing emergent things that you can't predict arise from interactions. If we just know the brain carefully enough, deeply enough, specifically enough, detailed, um, we'll understand that. But so far, eh, <laughs> nothing. So because of that, there are people who are going, well, maybe consciousness arises from smaller things like cells. Um, or maybe there are certain molecules, or maybe there are quantum level particles we haven't discovered that carry consciousness. This is called panpsychism. Um, and again, complexity says, well, you assemble these tiny little bits of consciousness and they become this larger consciousness like the one we think we have. But it doesn't get rid of the hard problem. What does get rid of the hard problem if you take the idea that consciousness comes from underneath and everything emerges from it. And that's Plato, Spinoza, Kant, Hegel, Schopenhauer. It's a huge thread in Western philosophy. This isn't crazy thinking until we get to the idea that machines, everything's a machine. But we've just seen from complexity, everything isn't a machine. So now... Do we have to take those ideas seriously? Okay, and let's, that's let's, the last half of the book. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And and with the last few minutes we have, let's let's because you mentioned this is this is not crazy. This is something a lot of philosophers have mentioned. I am unaware of those philosophers. I don't know this philosophy. Can right, you explain right. it to me? So it, it, it's it's consciousness was first, and then everything else arose from that. And if right. that were the case, would that say that life is? an emergence of consciousness that existence it? is an emergence of consciousness precisely and then there's no hard problem because everything is simply an awareness of experience within the large mind of the entire universe okay wait, wait, everything wait. is simply a part of the mind within the mind of the larger universe oh my god Right now, do you, do okay, you have any so analogies the, for that? <laughs> well, well, um, yeah, when you know, when you're dreaming, there's contents of your awareness, right? And those are sort of different than the contents of awareness when you're waking, um, because you recognize, oh, I was sleeping, so those weren't real. Um, the universe is the contents of awareness of a universal mind. Why is it that you've never heard of this stuff? Why is it that this is so hard to believe? Because it's confusing. Um, well, no, 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 it's not confusing. What, what sometime in the last 200 years, we got this idea that the universe is a machine. We talk about bioengineering, like you engineer a body. You can't. You can cultivate a body. You can't engineer it. Um, cells are not building blocks. They're living things that interact with each other. How do we get this idea that Material reality is everything. It crystallized by these philosophers, chapter 10, uh, in Vienna in the 1930s called the Vienna Circle. And they were the ones that said, the only things that are worth talking about, the only things that you can rely on are empirical science, science, and formal logic, mathematics. And those are the only things that can tell you the truth. The problem is empirical science depends on, I'm a researcher studying this object here and we don't affect each other. But we get to the quantum level, that all disappeared. We know that how I consciously engage the experiment decides whether light is a wave or a particle. So empirical science foundations is like sand. There's this other guy that completely even more resolutely destroyed the idea that mathematics can just a series of proofs starting with basic principles could explain all the structures in the universe. It turned out that's not true. There are statements that you can that are true mathematically that you can't prove are true. You can only apprehend them through your mind. So this materialist worldview that we live in came from these guys almost entirely men, unsurprisingly, few women. Um, and it doesn't work. It was wrong. So we're not stuck with the materialist view. And that means intuitions are available as valid ways to understand the universe. Mm -hmm. 
And some intuitions, for example, people who have been in deep meditation for years experience the nature of their mind as something arising from mind that goes ever deeper. Like our small minds are like the waves at the top of the ocean, but the ocean goes all the way down. That mind is the universal consciousness. We're just the waves at the top. I love it. Neil, I have to ask you this. Uh, it's going to sound very unscientific, but... <laughs> you know, Look what I just said. I, mean, <laughs> I don't know. Maybe it's the way you say it, you know. Could it be possible, and I'm not necessarily asking, are we living in a simulation? Because that's too simple of a question. What I mean more is, however you want to define a simulation, all of the, the th these things I learn, I feel like there could just be a, a guy, a kid in a, in, a, in a computer, you know, with a computer somewhere, who said, I'm going to lay down these six laws or eight laws or 10 laws, whatever, gravity, and there's, I don't know, complexity and a lot of things that I can't understand. My point is, there are these things. And then I'm going to put a bunch of stuff in. I'm just going to throw it in and let's see what comes of it. Because that essentially is what complexity theory sounds to me. There are rules and we put a bunch of ingredients together and then we see what comes from those ingredients based on these rules. And that's it. You can't predict it because it's not replicable, but there is a structure. Could that be like all of life? <laughs> So regarding questions like, is this a, a simulation? Um, is there a multiverse? You know, these are all theoretical. Uh, these are hypotheses. Um, I think they're unprovable, in which case, so what do we do with them? And I don't think they tell us anything about how we want to live or should live or how we should react to love or sadness or trauma or excitement or beauty, or, or, or. I don't think it helps to inform anything that's important to us as humans. But the grain of truth in there, I think, is that another way to think about complex systems and complexity is that it's all about information. That the fundamental material of the world is information. And um, do you know who Alan Turing was? Okay, founder of... Uh, so, you know, he invented the Turing machine, a hypothetical machine that could compute inf information in a particular way that is the basis of computer science. Turing based his work on the guy who, Gödel, who destroyed the Vienna Circle's mathematics. His was taking that uh, destructive uh, step and taking it even further. One can, when um, David Packard talked about evolution driving towards the zone of complexity. He said it in terms of information processing of living things. To be alive, you have to process all this information coming in from the environment, process it, react, which sends out information out there. It's all just information. And what is the container of information? An aware mind. The universe's information to me, really makes sense if you say that the universe is all within a vast awareness, a vast pure awareness, and everything it contains is merely information, which we react to because of our senses and our training to say are solid objects in the world. But <laughs> the middle part of the book, where's there a real thing? If you go down smaller scales, smaller scales, bodies become cells, cells become molecules, molecules become atoms, atoms become subatomic particles. There's no thing anywhere, in fact. When we talk about materialism, what's the material of the universe? There's no material there. There's only information. <laughs> I mean, I look. didn't do that stuff in my book because I just like, you know. But it's so amazing. <laughs> Yeah. Oh man, I wish I wish we could talk more. I got to take my son to practice. Well, for those feeling Invite the same back. way I do, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, for for those feeling the same way I do, number one, Neil, you're coming back. It just is because okay. I want to talk to you more about like what we do with it and all this good stuff. A, a great place to start is the book. So, notes on complexity: a scientific theory of connection, consciousness, and being. Uh, by the time you hear this, it will be out. 
Neil, aside from the book, do you write elsewhere? Do you put your thoughts out? Well, you know, I'm, a, I'm actually an academic medical researcher. I have a clinical practice. I write research papers all the time. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. This is my first book for a general audience. Um, it's leading to requests to do other stuff for a general audience. So we'll see. But I, you know, this isn't what pays my rent. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. My job as a diagnostic pathologist at a hospital pays my rent. So I want to talk about that too. Mm -hmm. So um, I'm definitely going to have you back because I want to learn about that. Your work with stem cells and everything is like, it's fascinating. I don't understand enough, but I, I want to. So sure. it's incredible. Thank you, Chris. This was terrific. A thank you to this week's guest, Neil Thies. The episode was hosted as always by Chris Stemp and produced by yours truly, John Rojas. Neil's book, Notes on Complexity, A Scientific Theory of Connection, Consciousness, and Being, is available wherever books are sold. And now to the quick housekeeping items. If you'd ever like to reach out to the show, you can email us at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com or message us on Twitter at smartpeoplepod. And of course, if you want to stay up to date with all things Smart People Podcast, head over to the website, smartpeoplepodcast.com, and sign up for the newsletter. All right, that's it for us this week. Make sure you stay tuned because we've got a lot of great interviews coming up and we'll see you all next episode.